Today on Remember Reading, we're talking friendship, dry Texas deserts, and hippos? I'm Lisa DeSaro, and we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of James Marshall's beloved George and Martha series. James Marshall may no longer be with us, but we're digging into the archives to hear from the man behind the books. In one interview, recorded on VHS in 1987, we find Jim, in his very own backyard in Mansfield Hollow, Connecticut, drawing, of course. I'm Jim Marshall, and I guess the first thing you should know about me is that I was born in Texas. I was born in the very beautiful old city of San Antonio. I was born practically in the Alamo, which is this building right here. So I'm about as Texan as you can get. Jim draws the famous Alamo Fortress in his recognizable black lines. Now I try to put a little bit of Texas in every book I do. You might remember James Marshall's characters, from Miss Nelson, to Viola Swamp, to the Stupids, to George and Martha, two hippos who are the very best of friends. They're all illustrated in his signature minimal style. It's a style Raoul III became familiar with from a young age. He's the author and illustrator of the World of Vamos books, from Vamos Let's Cross the Bridge to Tacos Today, the newest addition to the Vamos world set to come out in 2023. You know, there is something about the drawn line that just seems to brand itself directly onto your brain. And so there are moments in your life where you might forget that George and Martha or Viola Swamp, but upon seeing it, you immediately remember where you were, how old you were when you first discovered and read these books. It was the Texan in Jim that spoke to the Texan in Raul. I have distinct details of stories that I really love. And they almost feel like memories from my own life. This might be the El Pasoan and me growing up in the 70s and 80s in Mexican and Spanish-speaking household. But I have to say, I love it when George warns Martha, do not open this box. Whatever you do, Martha, don't open this box. That's what happens in the box the first story in the collection called George and Martha Back in Town. And of course, Martha's like, I've got to see what's happening in this box. If I don't see what's happening in this box, I'm going to go cuckoo. And so she opens the box up and boom, all of these Mexican jumping beans start to bounce all over the place. I love Mexican jumping beans. I remember my dad bringing home from the 7-Eleven in a tiny little plastic container. There'd be three of them in there and they'd all be making this little click, clickety-clack sound. And just the idea of Martha exhausting herself, trying to put them all back in the box and then George pretending he didn't know what was going on. That is so delightful. I think what he does so well with these books is that there's really a truth and honesty about the friendship. That's Brianna Carzu, author of Lou and Greenlight. She discovered the George and Martha books as an adult. 
we're testing boundaries and we're making mistakes and we're showing up and being present and empathizing with each other. I think it's just such a, a beautiful and honest depiction of friendship and the, the simplicity and clarity and funny that he adds to those relationships. It's just a beautiful set of two characters. And I think they teach us what it means to really be friends. The very first story in George and Martha's books are about how he pours pea soup into his loafers to not tell her that he doesn't like pea soup. And she's like, wait, hold up. As friends, we should tell the truth. Now she'll think I've eaten it. But Martha was watching from the kitchen. How do you expect to walk home with your loafers full of split pea soup? Oh dear, said George. You saw me. And why didn't you tell me that you hate my split pea soup? I didn't want to hurt your feelings, said George. That's silly, said Martha. Friends should always tell each other the truth. How did James Marshall come to write about two hippos who were best friends in the first place? Kids always ask me, and I think they ask all creative people, where do the ideas come from? And that's supposedly a very well-kept, mysterious secret that you're not supposed to ask artists. Maybe they don't even know. I think I know where they come from. I think ideas come from other ideas. My ideas come while I'm working, often in a sketchbook. I'll see something on one side of the page and something else, completely diverse elements, and I'll put them together. For instance, in the very first George and Martha book, one of the funniest episodes, or I'm told the funniest episode, is the split pea soup section, where George, who can't stand another spoonful of Martha's soup, split pea soup, pours his soup into his loafers under the table. And that came about from just looking at some little green dots on the on uh, one side of the sketch pad, and noticing that on the other side was this big, enormous hippo with two little raisins for eyes, and I put them together. Somehow it, it works. Brianna's process is a different one. Her ideas tend to come from some unlikely places. And the idea for her story, Lou, about a fire hydrant who's sick of being the neighborhood dog toilet, came right when she needed it most. I left a workshop about writing and illustrating chapter books and I was in tears and thought that I could never do this. I was too far away, I wasn't good enough and it was never gonna happen for me is how I was feeling. And I saw this peed on fire hydrant and I think that in that moment, I felt one with the fire hydrant. Like I felt like I understood how they felt in the world and I felt that they understood me. And I wrote down on a piece of paper, underappreciated fire hydrant. And from there I was like, I have to write this story. And I think I ultimately knew that the story I was writing was the conflict between what this character felt inside and also how the world responded to them and how the world treated them. And this this idea for me when I saw it was like, I felt like I had something in me to share, but that no one, including me, could see that potential. And I think the same thing goes for Lou, obviously, <laughs> is that he feels like no one sees what's really inside of him. And while he feels like there's something in him no one sees, there's a lot Lou is missing. Behind him, there's a doggy daycare. And when it catches on fire, he becomes the town hero with a bit of help from a kind firefighter. But 
dealing with an inanimate object for a character creates challenges. Lou is an inanimate object bolted to the sidewalk. He doesn't move. And trying to figure out, like, how do I create a picture book where things are happening behind him that he can't see, that he doesn't know, things happen in front of him, and that there's still a sense of movement and life in this world was incredibly hard. Like, I think I spent so much time figuring out how do I develop the scene that's happening behind him without him knowing, and how to do that in a way that isn't cluttered and over-illustrated and over overstimulating, I think, so that you could immediately see that image and kind of feel what's happening without too much need to slow down. Brianna has a style that uses a lot of negative space and draws the eye to what's important to the story, just like Jim does. But you might want to slow down to take in the overflowing pages of Raoul's World of Vamos. The images burst with color thanks to the help of colorist Elaine Bay, and their bold lines and panel style are very recognizable, much like those of the cartoonist Raoul describes loving from a young age. Some of the books, like Vamos Let's Go Eat, follow little Lobo and his dog Bernabe. Others, like Raoul's newest book, Tacos Today, follow the adventures of the Luchadores, an Avenger-like squad of taco-crusading wrestlers in training. But why luchadores? I was inspired by all of the great superheroes that I loved. And some of them were real-life superheroes, meaning that they were luchadores. And so I love people that turn themselves into larger-than-life characters. And luchadores, wrestlers, mass wrestlers, do just that. As a kid, I always heard stories about this cool guy named El Santo, Mexican wrestler. Here's one thing that I loved about him. When he died, he was buried in his mask. Nobody ever learned what he looked like underneath that mask. To me, that's pretty amazing. And it just shows how dedicated he was to the personality he had become. And so when I set about creating the El Toro and Friends characters, I wanted to create characters that were always in their masks. Their personalities are their luchador realities. And so I just started to have a lot of fun. In Tacos Today, El Toro, La Oinkoink, and the whole gang set out to use their near superhero skills to accomplish their mission, lunch. And what better lunch than tacos? But Raul fell in love with illustration long before he created the world of Vamos. It started with the newspaper strip, from Garfield to the far side to Calvin and Hobbes. I loved those stories and how you could tell a pretty interesting story in just four panels. In the case of the far side, maybe just one. I loved how every day you would see the same character going through a new part of their life, sometimes continued from the day before. The same is true of the World of Vamos books. Whether we're following Little Lobo and Bernabe to the market, or following El Toro to train for the big fight, the illustrations are always uniquely Raoul's, displaying his comic-inspired Texas landscapes. 
And I loved how immediately recognizable a cartoonist's style and technique were. So for instance, you could just look at an oval with a line down the middle with a little dot and you'd immediately know that you were looking at a Garfield eye. And I think that's what really fascinated me about drawing is how cartoonists had their own signature style. And later on, when I grew older, I started to go out on my own and I discovered comic books. And here's something that I feel is very important about comic books, especially coming from El Paso and my neighborhood where there weren't art museums, there weren't art galleries, but we did have the 7-Eleven. And at the 7-Eleven, I could walk directly to the spinner rack, spin it around and Every single level of that rack had a different comic book, each one a different genre, whether it's sci-fi, horror, romance, and every one of them written and drawn by different people, each in their own distinct voices and styles. And for me, that was another eye-opener, that there were different approaches that one could take when creating stories and drawings. And I think just that accessibility is what drew me because it was readily available to someone with 75 cents or sticky fingers. And so began Raul's love affair with illustration. But as a kid and aspiring artist, he didn't always get the encouragement he wanted from his art teachers. I was in third grade and there was this young kid next to me. His name was John Howell. And I was spending so much time on my drawing and I was so proud of it. But for whatever reason, Mrs. Bame never paid any attention to my drawing and gave all of the praise continuously to John Howell. <laughs> And I don't want to think that it affected me in any way, but but I think deep down, I'm still a little hurt by that little mo moment in my life. And I was always afraid to take art classes. And so I always avoided them. In high school, I, I never signed up for art class because I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do. Raoul's art teachers didn't see value in the kind of work he was making. It was comic book art, and that, according to his teachers, was no great artistic feat. And then I realized that a lot of teachers looked down on the type of art that I was trying to create, which was comic book art. Mrs. Grodin, Grody Grodin, as I am now calling her, <laughs> once told my dad, all he ever draws is muscular men, <laughs> which I think was true. And my experiences with art and art teachers were never really positive ones. And so I ended up later, I ended up dropping out of college and I just said, you know what? I'm just going to do this on my own. I don't need anybody's help. And it turned out okay. Grody Grodin was like Raoul's very own Viola Swamp, the witchy, evil substitute teacher of James Marshall's imagination. She was inspired by Jim's own difficult and formative experience with a teacher. 
When I was in the second grade, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be an artist very badly, and I thought I was pretty good. I went to school in Texas, and I remember it was a very hot May afternoon. If you've ever been in San Antonio, Texas in May, you know what hot is about. In the afternoon, we're all, we're all so tired, the only thing we could do is sit around and draw. And I thought I was drawing one of the most beautiful pictures of a pecan tree. I thought I was a little baby Picasso. And suddenly, from behind me, I heard laughing. Hysterical, rather witch-like laughing, and a long, skinny arm with long, black fingernails came across my shoulder and tapped my drawing. It was my teacher. She said, Jimmy, you will never be an artist. That is the worst drawing I've ever seen. Well, I remember dropping my little lime green Crayola at the time, and I didn't draw again for over 20 years. Such an experience would be devastating for any child with a dream of being an artist. Of course, Jim eventually returned to his craft, but not for a long time. He tells the story from behind his very own drawing desk in his very own artist studio. I started drawing when I was teaching school. Teaching school is a very, very hard job. And I would come home and to relax, I would start and to unwind, I would start drawing. I was in my late 20s when I, I guess, taught myself to draw. And I did the George and Martha books and then Harry and I started doing the Stupids books and then this Miss Nelson idea came up. Miss Nelson is the kind, always encouraging teacher of Jim's illustrated world, every bit Viola Swamp's opposite, the good witch to Swamp's bad witch. And in Miss Nelson, the character of Viola Swamp appears. She's the meanest substitute in the whole wide world, and she gets results. We all know someone like that. And I said, now, what is Viola Swamp going to look like? And Harry said, well, why don't you draw the meanest teacher you ever had? Well, I only had one, and it took me no time to get her down. It's as though Jim was writing for the child in himself, the one that was still a bit hurt by that early childhood teacher. But maybe that's why his books are so good at creating a sense of belonging between two friendly characters, even when one is in a difficult situation. In the story The Tooth, George takes a tumble on his way to Martha's house and loses one of his most prominent and beloved features, his right tooth. His favorite, we learn. Martha comforts George while he cries. They're there, she tells him. And after he gets a gold replacement, Martha reassures him. When Martha saw George's lovely new golden tooth, she was very happy. George, he exclaimed, you look so handsome and distinguished with your new tooth. And George was happy too. That's what friends are for, he said. They always look on the bright side and they always know how to cheer you up. Just like Jim, Brianna writes for the vulnerable child of her past. She didn't set out with a particular audience in mind when she started Lou, except maybe herself. There was just an intuition that I was writing for a younger version of myself. I was writing for the person that I was, for the person that I wanted to show up for her and let her know, like, hey, I see your greatness. And I think that writing for that version of me as a kid, it, it's universal. Lou deals with heavy subjects like identity and self-worth, but the right amount of levity keeps it light enough for a young audience. I think that 
life is difficult and it's inherently a struggle and it's just one way to cope and it I think is my way to cope is find a way to Lou would be a deeply depressing book if there was not humor, I think. I think I would have a hard time connecting with the deep sadness of what it would mean to be Lou if there wasn't also humor and there wasn't also something funny about it. And so I think it just happened naturally. There's a whole spread like dedicated to just pee. I think the reason it was funny and made me laugh was I knew why I did it. I did it because I felt like it was too intense to show a dog actually pee on Lou. So I did it as a way around how absurdly vulnerable that moment is because Lou's telling this story. Lou wouldn't want to show you his worst moment in action. He wouldn't want to show you this happening to him. He showed it the way he would and he doesn't even say that he gets peed on. He goes, well, you know. Then you turn the page to find a single arching yellow stream. Because he's so embarrassed. There's so much shame for this deeply horrible thing happening to him. And I think it just felt true and felt right. And it was also somehow funny. (laughs) But the humor doesn't detract from the weightier themes of the story. Lou is disconnected from his environment. Stuck as he may be, he doesn't feel a sense of belonging. He's stuck in his head, overwhelmed by his own feelings, Brianna says. And it may be this that resonates so much with readers young and old. It's what resonates most with Brianna. And I think that's me. I think that so much of my life, like I've moved a lot, I've lived a lot of places, and I think that I never felt this sense of home and belonging and connection to the places that I've been. And I think a lot of that is because I've felt so overwhelmed by my feelings and my emotionality and my sensitivity to where I was. And so I hope that someday I am able to create work that has more of a sense of rootedness and belonging and home But I don't right now. I don't have those feelings right now. And I I think because of that, like Texas doesn't show up or where I grew up in Connecticut doesn't show up. Though Brianna has yet to find her anchor in a place of belonging, her characters seem ultimately to find it for themselves. She lives in Texas, too, but Texas doesn't announce itself in her images like it does in Raoul's or Jim's. Their work is always informed by the dry southern desert of their childhoods. In Texas, it always seemed to be summer. When I was growing up, it was in the middle of this famous seven-year drought. Actually, it lasted a lot longer than seven years. And the world was very brown, dusty, bone dry. So I grew up in a sort of colorless childhood. The only, only things that grew out on our farm were a few pathetic zinnias. Raul and Jim had strikingly similar journeys. The Texas natives both landed in New England, but you'd never know either author ever lived in New England from their illustrations alone. You might not know that they encountered the cold at all. But I also love how his stories, at least the George and Martha ones and the Miss Nelson ones, there doesn't seem to be any reference to New England. And my work is very similar. I almost, even though I produce most of my books in the coldest months of the year, I try to ignore it as best I can when I'm drawing. All of the drawings that I create take place in the never-changing 
El Paso climate. That's, I'll, I'll be honest, it does get cold there. But most of my works take place in the heat of the sun, in the middle of the desert, with the mountains littering the background, the desert plants pricking at my tube socks. And so I think it's because those were the years that were the most formative for me when my imagination was at its highest, where everything was so much more alive to me. We get a view of El Paso and Vamos Let's Cross the Bridge. The request for the story came from Raul's editor, Margaret Ramo. She was hoping he would write a story about cars, but that didn't interest him too much. Not at first, anyway. It wasn't something that I was excited about until I remembered how much time we spent in a vehicle in El Paso, because El Paso is a very wide city. It goes on forever. But then I remembered how much time we would spend in a vehicle stuck on the bridge. And the bridge is a very interesting place because there's a moment on the bridge you aren't in a country. You are in a limbo place, a place that is neither Mexico or the United States. And I thought that was pretty fascinating, that there is a place where you could be that is not a country. Throughout the story, we see street food vendors and window washers and lowriders, all in various moods, from frustration to celebration, while they're stuck on the bridge between countries together. Brianna may not be quite as tied to a specific place as Raul or Jim, in her own non-country of sorts, but there are still those parts of the landscape that do call out to her. I was taking a walk with my husband and our dog, and I saw like a line of cars at a, a traffic light and then they turned green and they all left. And I was like, that's really heartbreaking. <laughs> like just there was this feeling that it was like, oh, this character just shined their light with the world and everyone left. <laughs> like how must how awful must that feel to share yourself with the world and have the world react or respond to you in a way that's rejecting and how do you deal with that what do you do with that feeling and yeah I couldn't not write that story after <laughs> after that moment that story became green light it comes out in 2023 I asked Brianna what it is about these everyday objects that speak so strongly to her I think honestly inanimate objects speak to me about how I'm feeling more than anything else I know for me that Inanimate objects don't pressure me. They don't try to ask me what I'm feeling. They don't like inundate me with questions. I don't feel like I have to respond in words. I think there's just like this shared strange connection that it's like, I feel you and you feel me and like we get each other. <laughs> but when it comes to characters who require a slightly more human style of communication, George and Martha showcase the best of humanity they really do highlight the greatest gifts we can give to other people in our lives, which is being non-judgmental, non-critical, empathetic, and really just show up with like presence and grace. 
We need to allow people to be who they are instead of telling people who they are or instead of treating them a certain way as a way of telling them who they are. And I think that George and Martha do that so beautifully. And they also show what it means to make mistakes about it. Just like real relationships, there are moments of strain or misunderstanding. One of my favorite stories is titled like The Misunderstanding, where Martha shows up at George's door and George is like, I need to be alone. I'm practicing headstands. And Martha's now really angry and she storms off. She's so upset. She's so hurt because he wanted to not spend time with her and she wanted to talk. And so then she gets home. She's still angry. She calls him and lets him know how angry she is, which is a great thing to do, right? And then eventually you see her laying in bed with her saxophone and she decides to play saxophone. And she's having so much fun that when George finally calls, she misses the phone call because she's playing saxophone. And I think what's so incredible is that she eventually, after that anger, she takes responsibility for her own feelings and is, I'm going to do something that feels good to me. I'm going to play saxophone. And then the story just ends. There isn't this like sense of makeup either. Like it doesn't say like what happens when George and Martha speak next. Jim doesn't shy away from showing tension in relationships, sometimes offering an unexpected kind of resolution. It provides an honest look at how even the most tight-knit friendship is subject to the nuances of individual needs and moods. Even best friends want different things sometimes. We see a similar ending in the story, The Tub. It's the third and shortest story in the first George and Martha collection. George has an affinity for peeking in windows, we learn. One day, George peeked in on Martha. But Martha is in the tub, and we turn the page to find Martha's tub overturned on George's head and Martha at the window wagging her scrub brush at him. He never did that again. We are friends, said Martha, but there is such thing as privacy. Then the story ends, just like that. Endings like those in The Misunderstanding and The Tub show the necessary, though sometimes uncomfortable, need to tell the truth. Because that's what friends do, even when it's not so pleasant. But sometimes endings were difficult for Jim for another reason, he says. The problem I have with books is coming to an ending that is not expected. At the same time, it has to be the right ending. Sort of, it's logical, but you don't know it's coming. And when you do a series of characters, a series of books, you don't want to keep doing the same book over and over again. Therefore, I try to develop the characters, try to make them a little more interesting, try to know something more about them. I, I know these characters very, very well. So well that sometimes they would even come to him in dreams. I had a dream that Martha came. She came up to the door downstairs, and I have two big old huge gray chairs that the kids in the neighborhood call my George and Martha chairs. And she sat down in one of the chairs. It seemed to me at the time perfectly logical that here comes this hippo in, and I'm serving her tea. And she starts getting very cross with me, and she said, you know that last book we were in? I said, yes. She said, I wasn't too pleased about some of the scenes. The lines weren't funny enough. And I remember saying to her, well, now listen here, you can make that line funny if you want to. And we went on and on, we're having this terrible argument. And she said, I want the next book to be better or we're leaving. So I've been starting working on this book, knowing if she comes again in a dream, I'll have, I'll have something for her. 
Even this fight had no clear, comfortable resolution. But that's the beauty of friendship, that it withstands disagreement, or even maybe an ultimatum like Martha's. It's incredible that these books are still being read today. And the reason why is because they are timeless, because these relationships are so realistic and so believable and so hilarious and heartwarming and everything else. We hope that in 50 years, Raoul's books will continue to be celebrated just like Jim's by readers both new and old. I try to appeal to adults in the world of Vamos books is for a couple of reasons. My mom and dad never read books to me. So books were something that I read on my own. I have always wondered, maybe they never read books to me because they didn't really relate to what was happening in the books. And so in the world of Vamos books, I draw a lot of details that might be very familiar to parents of Mexican backgrounds, grandparents. And so maybe it'll bring back a memory from a personal story of theirs. It just allows parents to go beyond what they're reading to share stories about their own personal histories and their own backgrounds. That's becoming easier as more diverse voices enter the world of children's literature, Brianna suggests. And that has another important effect, she thinks. There are so many more voices in literature than there were before. And it's still growing and it's still moving in that direction. And I think we can't tell the truth about the world if only a certain set of people are telling stories. We need the diversity of like culture and abilities and experience and emotions. And we need less fear about people telling the truth about those stories as well. As the literary world becomes more diverse, we get to learn new truths, new ways of expressing them, new landscapes to prompt old memories, or new stories. Picture books, while they may be sparse in language, can pack in big and complex lessons about friendship or difficult feelings, lessons that often follow us into our adulthood. And as for lessons, here's one for teachers. Maybe hold off on telling your students they can't draw. They may just grow up and turn you into an iconic, mean character. If you're really lucky, though, and kind and honest, you just might become a superhero wrestler in training, or a green light, or a hippo with an incredible knack for friendship. Tell us what you think on Twitter at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins, Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Julie Yader, Elba Luz, Megan Elnitsky, and Mary Wilcox. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Lisa DeSaro. Thanks for listening. <laughs>